My name is Matt Lulloyan. Uh, if we've not met, um, I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Liberty Church. Uh, it would be an honor to meet you if we've never had a, the opportunity to do that. Uh, but if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Annie referenced earlier, that's going to start on page 823, and then we'll flip over to 824 pretty, pretty quickly uh, in, our, in our text today. Uh, we've been in, this, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we will continue to be in the Gospel of Matthew through Easter and the week, or maybe two weeks uh, after that. Uh, today, we're looking at a passage from Matthew chapter 18 that's specifically about forgiveness. And as I've been in this passage this week, as I've been praying about this passage and praying for you and, and getting ready to come in this morning and talk about that topic, I have a lot of confidence um, that, that when we open up a topic like forgiveness, God wants to do some real deep and intentional work in our hearts. And so I'm going to invite you to dive into the deep end here with me right from the get-go. And the question I'm going to ask you right from the start this morning is this. Who would be the hardest person in the world for you to forgive today? Who would be the hardest person in the world for you to forgive today? As human beings, we hurt and we offend and we sin against one another all the time. Constantly. We do this every single day, every single minute of every single day. But some of those hurts and some of those offenses, they cut a lot deeper than other ones do. So who is that person for you? Who is that person? If, if I were to mention that person's name out loud right now, it would stir up some anger in you. It would stir up some pain in you. Something unfinished. I know that's an uncomfortable question. Uh, I feel that as I, as I ask it. And quite honestly, uh, I'm tempted to start with something a little bit lighter than that this morning. But just like Steve mentioned as he led us in liturgy this morning, not just in the season of Lent, but particularly in the season of Lent, as we consider the depth of our sin, as we consider our mortality, that we are weak and feeble people, dependent on Jesus, what good is the good news of the gospel if it can't speak to the heaviest baggage of our lives? What good does it do for us to just talk about forgiveness in some kind of theoretical, academic, surface-level kind of way when the reality of our day-to-day lives is that we have in the past and that we do very much in the present and we will in the future, we will struggle to offer forgiveness to the people who have really hurt us or cut us deeply in those places. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, perhaps, that, that people can hurt us and wound us to the point where, we, where, where it feels impossible to forgive. It shouldn't surprise us because that's the nature of sin. That's what sin is and that's what sin does. But it does surprise us. And it does leave these deep wounds in our souls. And then because engaging with those deep wounds in our souls is often a lot more painful and difficult, almost certainly we're tempted to opt for the easier way out, where we callous ourselves, become cemented in our unforgiveness, and then, and then indulge the part of each of us that thinks that bitterness or a, a lifelong grudge is the, is the best way forward from there. It's not the best way forward from there. And any of you who, like me, have tried that at some point or another in your life, you know that that's the case. It's been said, rather famously, that uh, bitterness or unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other guy dies. And yet, even if we know that to be true from our own experience, we say, 
pass the poison and make it a double this time because I'm convinced that this time it's going to work. So if we're going to be people who offer forgiveness to the most difficult, to those men and those women that are coming to your mind right now when I ask a question like, who would be the hardest person for you to forgive? Then we are going to need a compelling reason why we should do that. And we're going to need something that comes from outside of ourselves and intervenes in our lives that enables us to do what we found impossible to do on our own, by our own strength. So Matthew 18, 21 through 35, is about forgiveness in the kingdom of God. More specifically, it's about this unbreakable link that exists between recognizing our own need for forgiveness from God and then our ability to offer forgiveness to others in light of that. So, having asked the question that I asked about who would be hardest for you to forgive, now with our unsettled and our anxious and maybe even fired up bitter hearts this morning, let's turn our hearts and minds to the Word of God, the words of Jesus Himself. Matthew chapter 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Uh, Jesus, we... It's not hard for us to see that we're bad at forgiving other people even when we know that we're supposed to. And as that's very present in our minds right now, as we're thinking about people with whom we have an unsettled or broken relationship, there's not been forgiveness offered by us to them or even asked from them, we pray that the truth of your words would meet us where we're at, they would break up the hardness that exists in our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see, maybe for the first time or maybe in a renewed way, the kind of mercy and forgiveness you have offered us. Guide us into that, we pray, Jesus. We, we claim and, and, and plead uh, that we need your help this morning. So come and meet us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here's the, here's the big idea of this text in Scripture. 
We will forgive others to the degree that we recognize how much we've been forgiven. And that's the unbreakable link that exists between the forgiveness that we need ourselves and the kind of forgiveness that we offer to other people. That's the link by which Jesus is going to command his people to be the forgiven forgivers. So we're going to look at this text in a few parts today. We're first going to look at our desperate need for forgiveness. And then we'll look at our inconsistency in unforgiveness. And then lastly, the opportunity of forgiveness. So first, our desperate need for forgiveness. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Though this here is an amazing passage of Scripture, Matthew 18 is actually more widely known for the passage that comes right before it. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, talks about how to confront someone who sins against you. And the way Jesus teaches his disciples there is that you take that, that offense to that person who committed it, And if that doesn't work, you take another person with you, and it escalates from there all the way to telling the church, all the way to eventually removing that person from the fellowship of other Christians, or what we might call excommunication. But I think it's incredibly important that a passage about confronting sin is followed immediately by a passage about forgiveness. See, in Jesus' mind, there's no disconnect here. It seems like there's a disconnect sometimes in our practice of these things. But in Jesus' mind, there's no disconnect. Sin is to be confronted. It's to be addressed in a very serious and intentional way. It's not to be made light of. It's not to be glossed over. And at the very same time, we're to offer forgiveness to the ones who sin against us. So Peter here, at the beginning of the text we look at, sets the stage. And in response to hearing Jesus' words about confronting sin, Peter transitions a little bit and he asks about forgiveness. According to the tradition of rabbinical teaching of the rabbis of the day, if someone sinned against you, you were to forgive that person three times. After three times, if that person sinned against you again, there was no longer forgiveness for that person. The offender had exhausted his or her chances to ask for forgiveness to actually repent in that case. So Peter here, no doubt inspired by the teachings, by the example of what he's seen Jesus do and how he's seen Jesus interact and love people, He goes above and beyond where the moral bar is in his contemporary society. And he asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven? And he thinks as he says that that he's being incredibly generous. It's more than twice what other people do. So he's no doubt going to be surprised when Jesus says, actually, it's not going to be seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. And depending on the the translation you have, it's a difficult word or phrase to translate there. Your your translation might say 77 or 70 times 7. But what Jesus says next makes it abundantly clear. We're We're not supposed to get in squabbles about whether it's 77 times versus 490 times. Actually, more importantly, we're to forgive to the degree that we've been forgiven. And so to help us recognize our need for that forgiveness, Jesus tells a parable. And we looked at a few different parables last week about the kingdom of God. Parables are stories that teach. They teach us something about the nature of God and his work in the world. They teach us about uh, human nature and how we respond to God and to his, his work. This parable specifically teaches about forgiveness in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus introduces us to this king who is going to settle accounts with his servants. And the king in this parable is a picture of God himself. The servants in this parable are a picture of human beings. And in the parable, there's a particular servant brought before the king 
who owes 10,000 talents. He has a debt of 10,000 talents. We don't use talents in our contemporary society. We don't always quite, so we might not know what that, what does that mean? A, a, A talent is equivalent to 20 years worth of wages for a common laborer. 20 years worth of wages. So 10,000 talents is the equivalent of 200,000 years of working. In today's terms, uh, we're talking about somebody who makes $10 an hour paying back a multi-billion dollar loan. But even that might not actually capture what Jesus is, is trying to communicate here in these words. A talent is the largest measure of money that exists at the time. And 10,000 is the largest numeral for which a Greek term actually exists. And this, this was originally written in Greek. So when you combine those two things, it's almost as if Jesus is saying something like what we say when we say like a bazillion or a zillion dollars. Like a, not, not a real word, just something huge. And one commentator here says that the actual amount belongs to the realm of fantasy. Now how this servant got into that kind of debt, we don't know. What we do know, though, is that this is a picture of each and every one of us before God the King. The story of the world, the story of each one of our lives, is that we are those in a tremendous debt with God. He has created us for himself. And we have, in spite of creating us and calling us good, we have spurned his good gifts. We have rebelled against him. And in the process of that sin, we bring about the fracture and the corruption of every other good thing that God has created. But we don't often perceive that. A few weeks ago, when we were looking at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about what's wrong with the world. And when we think about the answer to what's wrong with the world, most often our minds go to these huge systemic issues that exist in our society. Poverty and racism and human trafficking and things like that. And that, of course, is true. Those things are what's wrong with the world. But at a more fundamental level, we have to agree with what an author named G.K. Chesterton said. When he was asked, what's wrong with the world, he responded very honestly, very humbly by saying, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Each and every one of us, in this default posture we have of rebellion against God, we are what's wrong with the world. And scripture, in passages that we don't really like and wish they weren't in the Bible, describe us as enemies of God. Enemies of God who need to be forgiven. Because sin is primarily an offense against God, the one who created us, the one who created everything, the debt of that sin is infinite. It's really the difference between the perfection of God and imperfection. And there's not a sliding scale or some kind of spectrum between perfection and imperfection. Right? There's perfection, and then like in an incomprehensible distance that way, There's imperfection, and this infinite gap in between those. And if you struggle to to grasp that, if you struggle to wrap your mind around that, then you're in good company. It's as hard for us to understand as it would be for a hearer of this parable to grasp a 10,000-talent debt. So the king here in this parable determines to sell this man and his family into slavery and all his possessions to try to make back just a tiny fraction of that debt. And the servant in his desperation, begs the king, have patience with me. I will pay it all back. But here's the thing. No, he won't. No, he won't. There is no way he's paying back this debt. Beg, borrow, steal, cheat, or kill. It's impossible to ever pay this debt back. 
even selling himself and his whole family and all that he owns would only make back a tiny, tiny fraction of that amount. And yet, his response is often our response. God, be patient with me. I will pay you back. It's it's what's sometimes referred to as the debtor's ethic, where we devote the rest of our lives, as we understand who God is and that we're in debt to him, we devote the rest of our lives attempting to pay back this infinite debt that we owe to God. We do that through our obedience. We do that through our efforts by living a good life or a moral life. We try to chip away at this massive debt. But even the most heroic efforts in the history of the world, the Mother Teresa-like humanitarian efforts, are but a drop in the bucket of closing an infinite gap. And the only way that we even have the audacity to try to pay God back is if we're failing to perceive just how wide that gap actually is, just how much debt there actually is. But the good news of the gospel is that what we could not do God has done for us. What we could never repay, God paid himself. The man telling this story to his disciples, Jesus Christ, entered into the world and upon himself took the debt of all who would believe and he forgave it. And that's the mercy and the grace of God. That's the mercy in not giving us what we actually deserve, not throwing us in debtor's prison, not selling us into slavery. It's his grace in giving us freely what we could never repay. This is the king in the parable having pity on the servant and releasing him and forgiving the debt. The debtor asks for patience and instead the king says, forget patience, I give you mercy instead. You don't even have to pay me back. Don't even try. So we have a desperate need for forgiveness. We are the servant with the 10,000 talent debt, but through the mercy of God, we've been forgiven. So second, let's talk about the inconsistency of our unforgiveness. In light of the the forgiveness that we receive from God, how are we to treat other people? Well, the servant in this parable is an example of exactly what not to do. Verse 28, When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Okay, A denarius is the equivalent of a day's wage for a laborer. So a hundred denarii is what a laborer would make in a hundred days, about four months, third of a year, something like that. So it's a significant amount of money. It's not nothing. In today's terms, we're talking about thousands of dollars. But a few thousand dollars is microscopic when compared to this multi-billion dollar debt that this servant has been forgiven of and released from himself. So this fellow servant makes the same plea that the first servant made. Have patience with me and I will pay you. And in this case, that's actually possible. It's actually realistic. For us, between a house or a car or student loans or credit cards or some combination of all of those, many of us in this room owe more money than we make in four months. I'm in that camp for sure. But it is feasible that we will pay back that debt during our lifetimes. That's why mortgages exist. They think that we're going to be able to pay them back in the course of our lifetime. In this parable, feasible as this debt might be to repay, the first servant has this fellow servant thrown into debtor's prison. Now, obviously, there's a huge inconsistency there. The first servant is forgiven this enormous debt he never could have repaid, and then he turns around and immediately, and with a lot more aggression, I don't know if you picked up on that, he's choking the guy out as he says this. 
He demands to be repaid. He receives extravagant mercy and then turns around immediately and demands exacting justice. So when we read this, do you feel your blood start to boil a little bit when you read this example? Like, do you start to, to look at Jesus' words and hear his parable and go, can you believe how ridiculous this first servant is? It's unfathomable. We get irate when we hear how he handles this situation. And then we're glad when the king finds out about all this and has this guy thrown into prison, turned over to the jailers. We're even more glad to find out that the, in the original language, the word jailers means tormentors or torturers. So dude's about to get waterboarded. Is a shorthand way of saying that. And good, we think. He deserves it. Can you believe what he's done? And then Jesus delivers the punchline. That wicked servant is you. That wicked servant is me. And it's any of us when we refuse to forgive those who have hurt us from our heart. This passage would be a lot easier to read if it stopped at the end of verse 34. It doesn't. And so, Jesus' parable here is actually exactly like what the prophet Nathan did in the Old Testament when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan confronted him. Nathan comes to David, tells him a story about a rich man who had a flock full of sheep. And yet, though he had a flock full of sheep, went to a poor man, took his solitary sheep, and used it for his own benefit and his own purposes. And King David hears Nathan tells that story, and he gets really fired up. He's like, that man who took the sheep, that man deserves to die. And Nathan, in that moment, says to him, you know what, David, you're right. Here's the thing. You are that man. That's you, David. And that's exactly the same cutting edge that Jesus gives to his disciples here in this parable. When it comes to unforgiveness, you are that man. You are that woman. I am that man. And just like that, the inconsistency of our unforgiveness is exposed. Like the first servant, we receive this extravagant mercy from God and then immediately we turn around and we demand exacting justice for other people. People sin against us. They offend us and they hurt us and they wound us. And just like the hundred denarii debt, those hurts and those wounds, they are real. They are significant. They are substantial. And we need not pretend that they aren't. I think that's another beautiful part of this parable. We need not pretend that those aren't real and significant. It's just that they're microscopic compared to the 10,000 talent debt of the offense and the hurt and the wounding that we have done to God and to his good creation. And most of the time we're blind to that. Most of the time we minimize our offenses against God and minimize our offenses against others. We maximize the offenses that have been done to us. And we need to ask God to reverse that. To really to open our eyes to what's actually true. We need to ask God to let us see the depth of our need for his forgiveness. Because if we could only begin to perceive the kind of mercy and forgiveness that God has offered us, then really the only possible response for us would be to offer forgiveness to the significant, to the real, to the hurtful and wounding, yet infinitely lesser offenders against us. A little while ago, I asked you, who would be the hardest person in the world for you to forgive? So I don't know specifically what's on your mind right now, what kinds of hurts and wounds you're thinking about there. Uh, some of us in this room, maybe many of us in this room, 
have been sinned against in really grievous ways. So it's really critical here, I think, to, to, to clarify, although we can't get into too much depth about it today, that forgiveness does not mean that we avoid confronting sin. In the church, it doesn't mean that we avoid doing hard things like church discipline. Right? Jesus teaches this about forgiveness in the same breath that he talks about those things. Forgiveness does, ne- does not ever negate the consequences of sin. There are still consequences to sin. Forgiveness is different than reconciliation, especially in those grievous cases. You might never again trust the person who has sinned against you in certain ways. But we must forgive. Even if there is no reconciliation, we must forgive. And in this parable, Jesus takes the qualifiers and the exceptions and the escape hatches that we'd use to remain entrenched in our unforgiveness, to remain entrenched in our bitterness, and he utterly obliterates all of them. There is no exception. There is no escape hatch. We've been forgiven and released from a debt we could never repay, and so in turn, we are called to forgive our debtors. So we talked about our desperate need for forgiveness. We talked about the inconsistency of unforgiveness. Third, let's talk about the opportunity of forgiveness. There are two motives from this parable you could take away about why you forgive other people. One is the avoidance of punishment. According to Jesus, verse 35, God will judge and will punish those who fail to offer forgiveness to others. And that's serious. Uh, that should wake us up. That will motivate us in some way or another to begin to offer forgiveness to other people. But to only think about it that way will hinder us from understanding the message of the gospel. To, to merely offer forgiveness to somebody else in order to avoid punishment will inevitably trap us in a mentality where we try to earn God's forgiveness by offering our forgiveness to others. But the thing is, we, we can't earn God's forgiveness. Not that way, not any way. The debt is too infinite, which is the point of this whole parable, which is the point of how amazing the mercy and forgiveness of God is. See, the, 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 the process of all this is supposed to go something like this. We recognize the enormity of our sin against God and the extravagance of His mercy to forgive us. And then, we recognize how microscopic, those substantial, the sins of other people are against us by comparison. And then, because we have been forgiven so much, we forgive others. That's how the process is supposed to go. When we, uh, when we offer forgiveness merely to avoid punishment, it creates a corrupted process. We make God's forgiveness earnable. We minimize our sin. We minimize God's mercy. Because if we can earn it, then it doesn't really need to be given to us, does it? God just needs to be patient with us so we can pay him back. He doesn't need to actually be merciful to forgive it. And if we think that way, then then, because we can earn God's forgiveness, we start to think that, well, surely others can start to earn my forgiveness. I mean, if I can meet the standard of God, then surely others can meet my own standard in the way they sinned against me. And then, perhaps even subconsciously, we start to expect others to start to earn our forgiveness just as we are earning God's or trying to earn God's. And we become entrenched in unforgiveness until they're willing to earn it back from us. And that, men and women, 
is how we can set out to forgive for fear of punishment and wind up entrenched in the very thing we set out to avoid. We set out to offer forgiveness to people, but because we're doing it simply to avoid the punishment of God, we trap ourselves in unforgiveness as we wait for other people to earn it back from us. Proverbs talks about our hearts being deceitful and desperately sick and wicked. I think that's the deceit of of bitterness and unforgiveness. So God help us in this. A far better motive for offering forgiveness to others is the opportunity to display the mercy of God. The same mercy that we ourselves need and are dependent upon. It's like the king says here in verse 33, should we not have mercy on our fellow servants as God has had mercy on us? There is punishment if we, if we don't forgive. That's what Jesus says. Those are the hard words of verse 35. But that's not about earning something from God. That's because to not offer mercy to other people, to not offer forgiveness to others, is to demonstrate that we have not grasped our condition apart from God's mercy toward us. See, forgiveness is one of, these, it's one of the, the clearest, purest litmus tests for whether or not we actually understand the desperation we have for mercy from God and the depth of mercy that we've received from Jesus. So to fail to forgive, whenever we do it, and no doubt all of us have done this, to fail to forgive is to, if we persist in those things forever, is to ultimately prove that we are not the forgiven people of God, the people who second by second are dependent upon His forgiveness and upon His his mercy. So we are not those who forgive in order to be forgiven, We are the forgiven forgivers. And there's a a massive difference between those two things. We are not those who forgive in order to be forgiven. We are the forgiven forgivers. And desperate for the mercy of God, delighting in in the forgiveness that he has shown us, we offer that same forgiveness to others. And I would propose this, that, that doing that in our relationships with other people and doing that in the world in which we live, it's one of the most tangible and powerful displays of the mercy of God that's possible in this life. Forgiveness, forgiveness of the the worst offenders, forgiveness when it makes no sense at all and when conventional wisdom says withhold and withdraw and become entrenched and just let yourself get bitter. That kind of forgiveness when it makes no sense at all, that is the unmistakable aroma of the kingdom of God. That, that smells like the rule and the reign of a God who is present and powerfully working in us. Right? That is the aroma of Jesus himself. And I'll close this morning with what I think is an incredible real-life example of this. It's incredible not only because of how radical the nature of the forgiveness is, but even more so because of the honest wrestling that you're going to hear that's happening under the surface as this offended party seeks to offer Forgiveness to the offender. The example comes from a woman named Corey Tenboom. And during World War II, she, along with her father and her sister, was imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück for hiding Jewish people in their home. Uh, Corey survived the concentration camp. Her father, her sister, did not. So a couple years after the war ends, Corey becomes this public, very well known public spokesman for the forgiveness and grace of God. She speaks all over Europe as they're seeking to put the pieces back together after a war of that scale. But as any of us who have tried to do this know, 
where forgiveness and grace sound fantastic in theory, sounds like a good idea when we hear someone talk about it, the reality of offering that is something entirely different. And that's what Corey experiences in a really intense way. Here's how she describes it in her own words. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a cap with skull and crossbones. Came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each, other, each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, 
I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even then, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is a a radical example of what it looks like to display the mercy of God. Through Jesus, God has forgiven us of our infinite debt against him. So in our lives and in our relationships, like Corey Ten Boom here explains, in even the worst offenses against us, may we know the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God with such intensity that we cannot help but offer that same love, that same forgiveness, that same mercy to others. Amen. We pray for us. Jesus, have mercy upon us. We are the 10,000 talent debtors who turn around and choke our fellow men and women who owe us 100 denarii or less. We are those who desperately need your mercy but like to demand exacting justice for everybody else. And again this morning, we're reminded that even in that particular way, we throw ourselves upon your mercy. We need your forgiveness for even how we fail to offer forgiveness. Would you help us to really perceive what seems so counterintuitive to us? That we actually never know your love with that that level of intensity until we forgive the worst offenders against us. And for the men and women that are in our minds this morning, those who would be hardest for us to forgive today, would you move in our hearts, regardless of the temperature of our hearts, would you give us the ability to offer forgiveness? And would in offering forgiveness, would your Spirit, flood our hearts and warm our hearts and remind us that that is the same kind of love you have shown us. You have to do that for us. We know we cannot on our own. And even as we come to this table this morning, remind us again, this is a picture of the depth of our need for your mercy and also a definitive declaration you have given us that mercy through Jesus. We're grateful for it. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.